Wednesday, and I want to frame this in terms of um, what I think this practice of paying attention is ultimately about, which is about, and I think what it's ultimately about is that wisdom that inspires compassion that manifests as kindness. And fundamentally, that's what it's about. We call it the path of insight or the purification of the heart. I think um, the way that uh, uh, I think kindness, goodness, it would be the parameter to measure did it work. Um, I'm thinking about um, uh, when Aldous Huxley was a philosopher who died probably two decades ago now, um, was dying. He died over some period of months and so had lots of uh, philosophical end-of-life discussions with friends who knew that he had studied great spiritual traditions for all of his life and meditated and uh, done consciousness experiments with um, mind-altering substances and really had seriously worked a lot in the realm of consciousness and transformation. Written about it, studied about it, lectured about it in a variety of traditions. And when he was dying, one of his associates, um, I'm not sure who, is said to have asked him, Aldous, from all of your studying and all of your practicing and all of your experiments and your reading and your writing, is there anything of which you are absolutely sure? And he said, yes, there is. And they said, what is it? He said, I'm absolutely sure that we could all be a little bit more kind. Mm. And think to yourself, wow, the end of the time, that's what it's about. But really, when you think about it, even thinking to the end, I want to teach you what the Buddha taught about it, but if you think about it, what if tomorrow the whole world woke up ten times more kind, twice as kind as they are now, and everybody who was kind redoubled their kindness. You think about the people who are not kind, that everybody else who had redoubled their kindness would inspire the folks who hadn't been, that would be catching in some way. It's, it's I think, the movement of, when we say about kindness, it sounds homely, but when you think about my like, ordinary kind, it's like it's one of those words like nice. When you say somebody is nice, you know, can't get a handle on nice. Compassionate sounds like a fancy word. You say kind, ah, it's not a big word. But kind really means the opposite of self-centered, the opposite of self-absorbed. So I'll read you a story. This is a children's story. It's a Jataka tale. A Jataka tale, our story, yeah. And to imagine, to be able to say at the end of one's life, I'm grateful for the life I led, no matter what it was, 
you know that I, I'm grad, I'm grateful for the life period or the life that I led without any caveats because it was this or that or the other there's a story that one of my teachers told about a person who I don't know who it was he wasn't apparently uh, a spiritual teacher with a name that we would recognize because I don't know about her I don't know what her name was but um, maybe a Zen teacher because I, I, I remember that the ethnicity was Japanese but about her that she said with her final uh, breath which is a Zen thing to do with your final expiration mm -hmm. you're supposed to say the gist of your whole knowledge so she said, presumably with her last breath, thank you very much, I have no complaints. <laughs> it's, it's a tremendous thing. Um, I, I, I think I told you when my aunt died um, um, almost two months ago now, in the last day that I saw her that she could still speak, she spoke from time to time and she, most of her remarks were, I had a good life. I have good children. Nobody was mean to me. I feel content. I have good grandchildren. What else do we really want when we're all finished? <coughs> Not everybody's going to have all of those. Somebody, some people won't have grandchildren. Or, but that we could all say, I have no complaints. To have a non-complaining mind. I always think about, um, I always forget what group it was that sings the song that says, if you uh, go the, the whole world over, there's one, th there's one thing you'll find, there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. Remember that? Uh, the opposite of the song uh, refrain that says, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> you, know that, you know, that we can in this very life with the life we have. I don't know the life of that woman who said, thank you very much, I have no complaints. We think, well, maybe. But, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the media every day, you see folks who apparently, so to speak, quote-unquote, have everything, aren't happy. So it's certainly not the stuff that you have in an outside way that makes you happy. This is a Jataka tale, the, a wise ape teaches kindness. So the Jataka tales are stories uh, in um, first related by the Buddha over 2,000 years ago, bring to light his many lifetimes of positive action practiced for the sake of the world, as I'm reading from the inside page of this. As an embodiment of great creation, the awakened one, that's capitalized, awakened one, reappears in many forms in many times and places to ease the suffering of living beings. Thus these stories are filled with heroes of all kinds, each demonstrating the power of compassion and wisdom to transform any situation. Uh, so there's stories about developing kindness and compassion. Part of the overall story um, about prior lifetimes of the Buddha were um, part of the legend is that he had many, many, many lifetimes in which he was able to perfect ten particular um, um, dimensions of his heart, beginning 
with generosity and morality and renunciation. And uh, truthfulness, patience, determination, uh, energy, uh, da, 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 da. loving kindness, equanimity, and wisdom. They're interesting to think about because all of them are things that you could do. You could get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to be super generous and go out and manifest that in some way. Today I'm going to be so honest, every single thing I'm going to, that I say I will scrutinize and be absolutely sure. Today I will just be uh, so patient with whatever happens. They're things that we connect with. You could say, okay, could you be a little bit more patient, a little bit more honest, a little bit more generous? It's amazing to say, could you be a little bit more wise? You know, that's the one of them that's so interesting, wisdom. Can't get up in the morning so easily, and today I'm going to say, today I'm going to be much wiser than yesterday. <laughs> you know, much more generous, much more patient, but more wise. What would that mean, really? So I've been really thinking about wisdom. So this is a book called, uh, a, a story called the Why, A Wise Ape Teaches Kindness. And um, it has to do with, well, I'll tell you, I'll read it to you. It's a children's story. Surely you'll get what it has to do with. <laughs> Once upon a time, near the great snow mountain of Tibet, lived a great being in the form of an ape. He was sweet and kind and ate only leaves and fruit. He was always ready to help the smaller creatures who lived nearby in any way that he could. One day a farmer went searching for a stray cow and lost his way. He wandered around for a long time until he came to the place where the great ape lived. Tired and hungry, he threw himself down at the foot of a tree. There he saw a sour fruit lying on the ground. He was so hungry that he picked it up and ate it, not even caring if it was sweet or sour. Then he began looking for more. Up above, he saw the fruit tree growing out of a rocky slope at the edge of a waterfall. Its branches hung out over a cliff, filled with desire for the fruit. He scrambled up the slope and then climbed the tree until he reached a branch heavy with fruit. He was so eager to get the golden color of fruit that he crawled to the very edge of the branch. So you get a picture of what's happening to this person. <laughs> Anybody has missed the moral lesson that's <laughs> building here? <clears throat> Suddenly the branch broke, and with a great cry, the farmer fell headlong over the cliff. Holding onto the branch for dear life, he fell down a long way into a pool of deep water. At the bottom of a ravine, the leaves of the branch cushioned his fall, and he was not hurt. He climbed out of the cold water and looked around, but the dark pit was surrounded by steep rock walls, and he could not see any way to get out. For many days, the farmer stayed in the dark pit alone. He drank water from the pool and ate the few pieces of fruit that had fallen in with him. Now the great ape happened to pass through that part of the forest in search of food. He climbed the large fruit tree and looked down over the waterfall Far below, he saw the man lying at the bottom of the pit, weak with hunger. Forgetting his own search for food, he called out, You there, <clears throat> what are you doing down in the pit? Who are you, and what happened to you? I lost my way in the forest, the farmer replied. I tried to pick up fruit from that tree, 
and fell down in this terrible place. I'm alone. I have no friends to help me. Please rescue me or I will die. Filled with sorrow, the great ape comforted the man with kind words. Do not think that all is lost because you have fallen into this pit and have no friends to help you. Whatever friends can do, I can do too. Do not be afraid. He threw down some fruit, then went off to prepare for the task before him. First he found a stone the same weight and size as a man and attached it to his back. Then he climbed up a steep slope to test his ability to carry the man out of the pit. Convinced that he could do it, he returned to the cliff and descended to its bottom. He said gently to the man, climb on my back and hold on tightly. The man mounted the ape's back and put his arms around his neck. The ape, stooping with the great pain of his heavy burden, climbed with great difficulty up the steep sides of the slope. At the top of the cliff, the ape was so exhausted that he lay down to rest. He said to the man he had just rescued, this part of the forest is full of wild animals. While I sleep, please keep watch over us both. The man promised, do not fear, I will stay here and guard both of us. Sleep as long as you like. But as soon as the great being had fallen asleep, evil thoughts sprang up in the man's mind. Why should I stay here, he thought. Nothing here to eat but roots and fruit. How can I escape from this forest if I don't recover my strength? The body of this ape would give me more than enough food for the, my journey. While there is no time to lose, I must kill him while he is asleep. <laughs> no, we are laughing because it's very painful, isn't it? And the thing is, it's not just painful because it's a Jataka tale. It's painful because it happens to us. Because we could have people... I don't have to draw that out for you. You get it. We are two seconds away from unkind thoughts or thoughts that might abuse somebody else or exploit somebody else. Half a second. Once he wakes up, not even a lion could kill him. I must kill him while he's asleep. The man's mind was so caught up in dark thoughts that he completely forgot his own gratitude. He took up a huge stone and threw it at the great ape's head. But the man was still weak from hunger, and the stone only bruised the ape's temple and then fell to the ground with a loud thud. Can you see that the ape is crying? Tears are coming out of his eyes. Jumping up, the ape looked around to see who had attacked him, but he saw no one except the man he had saved. Man's face was pale and he was so ashamed he could not even lift his head. It did not take long for the ape to realize who had meant to harm him. Forgetting his own pain, the great being felt only sadness and compassion for this man who had thrown away all hope of happiness by his action. His eyes filling with tears, the ape said sorrowfully, Friend, how is it that you, a human being, could be capable of such an act? Having been saved from one dark pit, you have fallen into another. You have ruined yourself. No one, not even I, 
has the power to erase that deed. Now come with me, said the ape. Stay by my side. Do not stray, for you are not to be trusted. I will guide you out of this dangerous forest. Wandering here, weak and alone, you would certainly come to harm and undo all I have done. And so the great being led the man to the border of the forest. Now, friend, he said, you can leave this forest. May you have a happy journey. May you avoid evil actions, for they can only cause you pain. Then the ape left the man and returned to his home in the forest. No sooner was the man left alone than his face and his whole body broke out in horrible sores. Wherever he went, people were afraid of him and drove him away with stones and harsh words. One day a king who was hunting in the woods came upon the wretched man and spoke to him in a voice tinged with fear. You are the most miserable-looking creature I have ever seen. What are you? Are you a ghost or a demon? Bowing, the man said, I am a man, your majesty, not a spirit. My suffering now is the result of my treachery against a friend. Learn from me always to act kindly toward those who are kind to you. When our minds are filled with love and affection for our friends, we gain everyone's trust and enjoy peace and happiness, knowing the consequences of good and evil action towards friends, O king. Hold firm to what you know is right. With these words, the unfortunate man instructed the king, who treated all his friends and subjects with kindness for the rest of his life. So, that's a good story, isn't it? In the 20th year, following the Buddha's enlightenment, this is from the life of the Buddha, according to the Pali Canon put together by Bhikkhu Nanamoli. Bhikkhu is a monk, so monk name of somebody. In the 20th year, after the Buddha's enlightenment, the narrator of this life story says, Thus I have heard, once when the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was living at Savati, a bandit had appeared in the realm of King Pasanadi of Kosala. He was called Angulimala, that is to say, finger necklace, and he was murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, and merciless to all breathing things. Villages and towns and districts were laid waste by him, he went on murdering people, and he wore their fingers as a necklace. Angulimala, a mala is a necklace, and Angulimala is a necklace made of fingers. One morning, the Blessed One took his bowl and outer robe and went out on alms rounds. When he returned, he took to the road where Angulimala then was. And cowherds and farmers and shepherds and travelers saw the Blessed One on the road, and they said, Don't take that road, monk. On that road is the bandit Angulimala. Men have come by that road in bands of 10, 20, 30, even 40 from time to time, but they have all fallen into the hands of Angulimala. When this was said, the Blessed One went on in silence. Second time, the same thing happened, and the Blessed One went on in silence. A third time, went on in silence. 
Seeing him coming in the distance, the Rabba Angulimala thought, It is wonderful. It's marvelous indeed. Men have come along this road in bands of even 40 from time to time, and now this monk comes alone and unaccompanied. One would think he had been fated to come. Why should I not take this monk's life? Seizing his sword and shield and buckling on his bow and quiver, he went in pursuit of the Buddha. Then the Blessed One performed a feat of supernormal power, such that Angulimala, going as fast as he could, was unable to catch up with the Blessed One who was walking at his normal pace. Then Angulimala thought, it is wonderful, it's marvelous. I used to catch up with a galloping elephant and seize it, or a galloping horse, or a galloping chariot, or a galloping deer, but although I'm going as fast as I can, I am unable to catch up with this monk who's walking at a normal pace. He paused and he called out, stop, monk, stop, monk. And the Buddha said, I have stopped, Angulimala. When will you stop? Angulimala, I have stopped forever for swearing violence to every breathing thing, but you have no restraint towards anything. So that is why I have stopped and you have not. So saying, the robber took his sword and weapons and flung them into a gaping chasm's pit. The robber worshipped at the sublime one's feet and then and there asked for the going forth. The enlightened going forth means he asked him to take him into his order. The enlightened one, the sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with these words, Come, Bhikkhu, he said. And that was how Angulimala came to be a Bhikkhu. The end of the story about Angulimala is that as a bhikkhu, as a monk, as a practitioner of the way, he really came to have a very great and deep understanding. And it's also told about him that for the rest of his life, people threw stones at him and reviled him. Not unlike the end of the story of the farmer who people threw stones at. It's also part of that story that he managed that being thrown stones at and being reviled, Angulimala, with a patience and a dignity and a recognition really of the karma involved in that it was the fruit of his karma to elicit that response from people and that he had a patience and a dignity through it. So I wanted to talk about stopping. The idea about stopping, when, it, when the Buddha said to Angulimala, stop, when are you going to stop? I think about stop as meaning more than when are you going to stop killing people or making finger necklaces, but when are you going to stop the continuation of greed and 
hatred and confusion through heedless acts of impulse without reflection. When are you going to stop and reflect? The fourth, in the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught, part of his own realization, part of his own enlightenment experience, taught the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, <coughs> the truth of the possibility of the end of suffering, and the fourth noble truth, the path leading to the end of suffering. The noble eightfold path, namely right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. It's really what I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to start by talking about uh, possibly replacing the word right with wise. Wise understanding. If you've uh, at all walked up the hill towards the uh, uh, residence halls and the other part of this retreat center, you have passed the prayer wheel at the gate. How many people have passed the prayer wheel at the gate? You should make a little field trip up there if you haven't, because there'll be a sign that says, don't go past this point, but the point is the prayer wheel. So you can go up to the prayer wheel and do a turn on it it's got little knobs that you can grasp one of them and turn. It's a beautiful prayer wheel. It's filled with blessings, you know. It got filled with blessings that people wrote when the buildings were being built um, and sealed afterwards. So it's full of your blessings and mine and everybody else's that's in there for as long as that wheel holds up, which we think will be a long time. It's painted by an artist in Woodacre. It has uh, loving-kindness phrases on it. May all beings be peaceful and happy. It has a bucolic scene of cows grazing. It looks like West Marin. It does not look like Asia. It's a beautiful prayer wheel. And it, it's, uh, it's octagonal. It has eight uh, knobs and eight facets around the bottom, corresponding to the eight parts of the Eightfold Path. But they're not called right understanding, right aspiration, right action. They're called wise understanding. It's nicer, I think, to call it wise. <coughs> it's a, you know, perhaps it's semantic, but... Right has such a feeling of right and wrong. Um, and wise has much more, for me, a feeling of thoughtful. And... Uh, the possibility of becoming more thoughtful. Right or wrong is it's either right or wrong. But we could be wise and more wise and even more wise and even more wise. I know that I've told you the story of, um, of uh, how taken I was having lunch with uh, my daughter Elizabeth, my grandson, when he was probably just about two. He's three now. It made such a big impression on me. We were having lunch together, and uh, he was eating a cookie, and he had eaten as much of that cookie as he wanted. And so he was left with a half of a cookie, and it's interesting to have a half of a cookie that you don't want. You can do all kinds of things with it. And uh, so he had it in his hand, 
and then he had it out over the side of his chair. Well, we're, we're, in, we're in their home, in their dining room, and here we are eating, and he's got the cookie in his hand over here, over the ground. And you can see that he's contemplating, <laughs> watching how it would be to crumble this cookie. It's just one of the things that you could do with a cookie that you don't want to eat anymore. So he's got it out in the air, and he's holding it out there. And uh, Elizabeth said to him, think, Harrison, what do you think? Is this a good decision or a bad decision? <laughs> you know, so she did say good and bad, you know, but two-year-olds don't know why. So, you know, they think about this. Is this a good decision or a bad decision? So on the level of two-year-olds, I think it's okay to say good and bad, not wise and unwise. And the, 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 opera, the operative term there is think a minute. Think a minute. Is this good or not good? And then you decide. The, uh, the, the principal scripture source that we find ourselves uh, teaching when we talk about think a minute before an action is the Buddha's, the Buddha's instructions to his son Rahula in a sermon called um, Instructions to Rahula, his son, where he said that before any action, you should contemplate, is this action that I'm about to do for the benefit of myself and for everyone else? And, and in the middle of an action, I should, you should contemplate, is this what I'm currently doing for my benefit and for the benefit of all beings? And after an action, is this what I just did for my benefit and the benefit of all beings? And at any point, before or during or after, you could amend. Now, before would be the best time, of course, because before, if you find, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Oh, it might be, it's not such a good idea. I won't do it. That when I'm able to do that, I think to myself, phew, you know, it saves a lot of trouble to head it off at the pass. <laughs> and stopping is often a very, very good tool. I've been telling people this year, it's a new practice I have, uh, I do it most when people phone me up or write me an email and invite me to do something that's really, really interesting and um, intriguing and would be fun. And, uh, it's got all the proper bait on it. I, <laughs> I have, I, I have, I have uh, uh, it's a fruit that I have a lust for, you know, I, I, something that I really need to work on. And so people will call and say, we're giving this conference in uh, Washington, and so-and-so is going to be there, and so-and-so is going to be there, and this and that is going to happen. And we really would love for you to talk about this and that, and you'd be just exactly the right person to do it. And we need a woman. I mean, every possible way, uh, every possible piece of bait on that that I might rise to. And I do. So I have this new practice called, I say, that sounds like a really wonderful idea. Um, uh, I am certainly motivated to respond positively. Thank you so much for asking me. Now I need to practice this new practice that I have. And people are very intrigued. What is your new practice? So my new practice is called thinking it over. <laughs> that, uh, is this wise or not wise? I mean, it's an incredible, but the, the, the thing is, in order to do that practice, you have to stop. You have to stop because otherwise we are pulled forward by our impulses. If we go back to the wise ape and the 
the farmer in the forest. Remember his two impulses? He got so hungry. You could tell just when, uh, as I was reading it to you, filled with desire for the fruit, he scrambled up the slope, climbed in the tree until he reached the branch. Heavy with fruit, he was so eager. Didn't you know by that time he was going to be in trouble? <laughs> you know, that before he was so eager, he got blinded by his lust. He fell all the way down. And then here he is having come out and and been saved by this ape. And all of a sudden, evil thoughts sprang up in his mind. And even think about the evil thoughts. Why should I stay here? There's nothing to eat here but roots and fruit. How can I escape if I don't recover my strength? It's not actually an evil thought directed on the person. I mean, it's not as if he suddenly thinks, this great ape is terrible and and I, I need to kill him. It's, again, a self-centered, what do I need? I'll die if I don't get out of here. And, so, and I need the strength to get out of here. It's, again, I, I need something. He forgot, it said his, he forgot, he completely forgot his own gratitude. When you think about gratitude, it's a sense of thanksgiving, which comes when you feel, I don't need anything. And that when we say, I'm, I feel grateful, we feel full. I'll talk a little bit about that particular Eightfold Path, partly because I want to talk about how each of them relates to stopping. The easiest way to start with them, they're, they're in three groups, you know, right understanding and right aspiration are one group. They're ways of uh, thinking about, they're usually called the wisdom parts of the path. What do you know? wise understanding and wise aspiration, they're entwined with each other in a sense. Wise understanding is the kind of understanding that uh, the great ape points out to the farmer at the end. These kinds of evil deeds have no end. They cause tremendous amount of suffering. kind of lust that drives us causes tremendous amount of suffering. We think in the moment of acting that we'll feel better. And in the moment, often, there's a, there's a pressure that's relieved. I think so much about people say, I just have to get this off my chest. And they're going to tell you something. I have to get this off my chest. And I think to myself, no, you don't have to. You're just electing to. You know, past the age of three, we don't have to. You know, you know see, I blurted it out, but we don't have to blurt. I mean, if you were meeting the President of the United States or the Queen of England, you wouldn't blurt. You'd think about it, you know. Don't have to blurt. You could think. I need to tell you now. No, you don't need to. You're deciding to. I need to put this out. No. Um, wise understanding, I think, involves knowing that, uh, that greed and hatred and delusion are the roots of suffering causes of suffering in the world. And they lead to right aspiration, which is the second part of the path, which means the aspiration to act always 
out of a place of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, which means always stopping at least long enough to figure out what is my motivation, what is my intention. Truth is that I think my intention most of the time, think about yours as mixed. Hmm? It's mixed. Even when I think I'm doing something completely lovely for somebody, and it looks like a generous act. I think part of it is maybe I'm motivated to be generous, and um, I really I get a lot of joy out of generosity. And maybe part of it is a little bit selfish. Maybe part of it is selfish, not even that people will know that I'm generous, and I'll say, oh, how generous. Sylvia was, and then I'll feel good, okay. Maybe even if nobody knows that I'm generous, I know that I'm generous. I tell myself that good story about how generous I am. It's, it's actually different to tell myself a story about how generous I am than to tell myself the story, I really didn't need this. And if I needed it, I would have kept it. Really, if I really, really needed it. That you could say that uh, there's no such thing as generosity. It's a very sweet story. I, I probably have told it before, but so many of you know my friend James Barras, and it's a James and myself story where we were in um, India studying with an Advaita teacher in 1990 named uh, Punja, and uh, I had wonderful several weeks there, and uh, uh, we'd go every day to Darshan to, with about 20 other people, and all this asking questions of the teacher, and he would teach. And, at the end of our time there, James and I somehow managed to get a private interview with him. I don't know how he did that. And uh, uh, when we had that interview, I remember that uh, uh, Punja was asking, what, what was it that we taught? And uh, I guess we explained Spirit Rock, uh, Mindfulness, Metta. And James was talking about how our uh, practice here was based on dana, on generosity and uh, that really all of the teachings were um, inspired by the sense of generosity and cultivating a sense of open-heartedness. And we even think about loving-kindness when you think about it. It's a generous act to forgive people and open your heart to them. Anyway, he was just saying it very much based on the teachings of generosity. And Punja said, there's no such thing as generosity. Well, here we are, we're having an interview with this teacher, and we've been very, you know, we feel a little bit good, you know, we're teachers in a meditation center, and we have a special interview. And Punja says, no such thing as generosity. I look at James, he looks at me, have we just made complete fools of ourselves, you know. Uh, and he, he went on to teach. Punja explained it, I think he was quite right, he said, um, on a certain level, quite right. He said, when you think about it, um, could be an expression of generosity. Uh, you know, we think about the idea of I give something to you, but you could also think about mind free of lust, mind free of clinging, in which giving away just happens, and that there's no one who is generous. Just... Um, when you think about, when I think about it, I always think about things like um, when James and I were talking about it after it, I said, listen, James, it comes winter, 
and I'm putting away the summer clothes, and I say to myself, I haven't worn this, worn this particular bathing suit in three years. Really, I haven't worn it in three years. I'm not likely to wear it next year. I could give it away to the Goodwill. Isn't it? And then the next thing I say, well, this I didn't wear, but it's a really good thing. I could wear it next year, but I might not. So I'll give it to the Goodwill also. But isn't that a generous act? Well, it seems like, you know, I was cultivating in that moment generosity. And maybe, maybe, but on the other hand, using that other framework of understanding, you could say in the mind there's a moment of clinging, and then there's a moment of non-clinging in the mind. In the moment of non-clinging, holding on falls away, and giving away happens. And it's not generosity, it's a moment of seeing, moment free of lust. Moment free of the sense of need. Moment free of urgency. There's no such thing as generosity. So, each of these things, I'm thinking about what would it mean then, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Would be the mind free of greed, free of aversion, free of confusion, so that our actions don't come out of there. Or for myself, this is where we got off into the story of Punja, that uh, enough of my intention. The majority of it is not motivated by that. Maybe, that's, I think that's what got me into the Punja story, that maybe I'm about to do an action mostly motivated by goodwill and a little bit motivated by everybody will think I was great. Okay, so if most of the motivation is pure, that's probably enough. You know, I think if I wait to scrutinize and make sure that every single thing happens with absolute purity of intention. Maybe I'd spend too much time scrutinizing. Maybe I just, with my limited resources, could just make a judgment call on that. Or when, you, when we say something and say, is this motivated by um, the need to really put out the truth in this certain situation, or is this actually motivated a little bit by anger? that while I'm putting out the truth, I could spread this bad word about so-and-so. You know? It's just really that I'm putting out the truth for the benefit of this organization or for the benefit <laughs> of everyone here. Or am I getting a little revenge? To be sure, I'm more, even more sure about that. What I really wanted to say this morning is that the way that I am most sure is as a result of this new incredible practice called thinking it over. Um, that if I'm not entirely sure, you wait. I think so, but thinking it over. 
when anybody, when I, when I, I've taken a vow this year uh, with a couple of my friends to not say a sentence that begins, uh, I'm not sure if this is right speech, but <laughs> if I'm not sure, it's not time to say it yet. Because it's usually an introduction to something that's really not right speech. And it's, say, it's, it's a code, and it means I'm about to say something that's not right speech. It is gossip. Please forgive me in advance, and now I'm going <laughs> to indulge myself. That's really what it means, isn't it? Yeah? And we are in the secret society of people who are now exempt from right speech because we... It's, it's, it's crummy, really. You know, it's really... It's a hard thing. It's a, it's a vow I'm really working on having. Would you... Well, how would you think about taking that up for a vow? Ah, <laughs> such a sigh. It's actually a quite a hard practice. Okay, think about it. Think about. It. You want to think about from now till next week. Not a, not one glitch on the right speech. Just do right speech from now till next week. People who have taken this on as a day long practice tell me it's extremely hard. I mean, you can talk about other people. Some of the traditional scripture commentary says never talk about anybody who's not there. Well, it's very hard to not talk about anybody who's not there because you pass the time of day. Say, I saw Susan today. She's looking well. You know, sometimes you pass the time of day and you, you spread news that's helpful for other people. Or it's very good news to hear that David is well and that he's not here because he's moving. So there's, a, I mean, sometimes you talk about people who are not there. But what if we really did clean speech for a week? Take it on if you want to, and then next week we'll check about whether people are feeling better. So you don't have to say what you did. You don't have to confess to levels of bad or unwise speech. So let me remind you of the other path parts. Those are the two, right understanding and right aspiration. Certainly you have to stop. The three path parts that have to do with uh, action right action, right livelihood, and um, right action, right livelihood, right speech are usually grouped together because they're things that we do in the world that people could see or that are, are relational. Right understanding and right aspiration are not relational. Nobody else knows how your level of wise understanding, but you can see the actions that people take. And they're really self-evident. The thing that I want to say about them, which is always interesting to me, is that there are, uh, there are three path parts, and there could be one because they're all forms of action. You say right action, and you say right livelihood and right speech. And the question comes up sometimes in my mind, why wouldn't we just say right action, action that is neither exploitive or abusive? that uh, it doesn't, isn't tinged with uh, greed or with uh, aversion. And I, you know, I'm thinking, and, and certainly it's how I have heard it explained, is that um, right speech is such a, first of all, potent way that we can cause pain by exploiting or abusing. And because we're speaking all the time, that it needs a path part all by itself that the power of speech to injure a person one way or another is enormous. You know, the, uh, um, I wish I could remember uh, 
uh, uh, there's a Buddhist citation for it. There, there's certainly a Talmud citation that says you can kill a person with speech, that you take away his life if you say something. And not meaning to say that the person actually physically falls dead when you say something, but if you uh, so wound a person's sense of themselves that they're humiliated, that humiliating is the worst that you can do to a person. You take away their lifeblood. They become, in that description, pale, like a dead person. Really, the life goes out of them. I knew a person once who uh, had had an illness that was um, in remission for some period of time and seemed like it might stay in remission and had a hugely humiliating event happen in his life. And his illness soon came back. And I think, you know, it could have happened anyway, but I thought a lot about the fact that when we come, become humiliated, we say things like, I wish I could have fallen through the floor. You know, we really don't want to be seen by anybody anymore. It takes away, it's terrible to be humiliated. And we humiliate with speech. So, so right speech, also right livelihood, I suppose, because we, uh, it, it's, um, it's so complicated to uh, figure out how we will get enough to sustain us in our lives without abusing um, or without getting too much? Or how are we going to do that? Also, it's so complicated now to do right livelihood because uh, in the days of the Buddha, it said, um, <clears throat> don't make firearms, um, don't be a soldier. Um, Don't keep slaves. But we have so much more complicated ways of being abusive in livelihood now. We should spend a whole morning on it sometime. See, it says here in the scripture, what is right livelihood when the noble disciple avoiding a wrong way of livelihood gets his livelihood by a right way of living? This is right livelihood. What do you know from that? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Zero. I had an interesting thought this morning when I was thinking about how I would teach that this morning. Remember the story of a man named Guido who I met in uh, uh, a language uh, intensive. Uh, five years ago, I was in Israel for a month at a... Um, a month-long residential Hebrew language intensive. And um, Guido was one of the other students in my particular class. We were in the same level. And uh, we got to be friends the first day. We sat next to each other and we whispered in class when and either of us lost the place. We were helping each other out. And most of the people in the class were there because they were uh, new immigrants, many of them from Eastern Europe, and were going to live there and really needed to speak Hebrew. I had my own reasons for being there. Guido's reason for being there was, although his name was uh, Italian, because his father had been Italian, he'd been uh, born in Germany post-war, probably born, uh, born mid-50s, he's much younger than I, 
and um, he was part of a religious community, a Christian religious community that uh, uh, I suppose just after 1948, time of statehood of Israel, um, took on as a mission in Israel to run two old age homes for Holocaust survivors. And it's their uh, life's work uh, to uh, run these two, uh, they had hotels as well, they had two hotels on the sea in that they uh, ran for people to come and have holiday, people who were survivors who were still well, to have uh, two weeks of holiday a year. And they just ran those hotels and invited people as they guessed. And they had uh, two old folks' homes, the people who were unable to care for themselves and didn't have anyone to care for them. And they did that as their ministry. And I spent, um, I went home with Guido for one Sabbath and uh, spent, uh, spent a Friday afternoon to a Sunday morning with him and his community who were all religious Christians running a, uh, an old age home, um, keeping a traditional orthodox context for these old folks to live in so that the eating rules and the Sabbath rules were ones that were supportive of the people living there. Have a Sabbath meal with uh, these uh, young people who had taken this on for a lifelong work and have a, a Sabbath meal with, uh, uh, I think there were 13 people still in this place because they're dying, there aren't very many left. I was thinking about this morning when I was thinking about what would Guido do as a livelihood 10 years from now, because this mission will by its own <coughs> self no longer be applicable. And uh, I thought about the moment of uh, uh, making a blessing over wine, which is part of the beginning of that Sabbath meal, and having someone who's uh, 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 the um, one of the administrators of that particular organization raise his glass to the woman across from him and say Shabbat Shalom, Frau Schneider. And I thought to myself, these people's life work is uh, to try to uh, heal a wound make all right what wasn't all right. I thought this is probably the, the high point of right livelihood, you know, how to spend your life doing something that needs to be done. I'm thinking about all the ways in a life that we could take that on if we did other kinds of work. People do other kinds of work just like that. Uh, not only addressing the pain of a post-earthquake, or Doctors Without Borders, but addressing the pain of mistakes other people made that remain part of the consciousness of the world that have to get healed in some way. Probably really the pinnacle of right livelihood. I thought of it this morning because I've, I've been thinking about Guido for all these years and thinking I would tell that story about Guido someday. But I didn't know where it went, what kind of a story it was. It's a reconciliation story or the need for forgiveness story. 
certainly is a story about how people choose to work in their lives, the kind of work we choose to do. And then there are three path parts that have to do with uh, mind training. And they all involve stopping. One of them is right concentration. It has to do with stopping the habitual way in which the mind moves from one object to another, to another, to another, and just focuses in one particular way in order to cultivate that level of steadiness that allows for clear, wise choice. Right concentration, right mindfulness really means being able to, in a balanced way, hold every moment. It doesn't really mean to label every moment. We've been thinking about this when we teach mindfulness this, you know, these weeks, we teach a lot about the practice of naming every moment of experience. It's very helpful to direct the attention, to open to the experience of what's happening. But labeling isn't mindfulness. Labeling is labeling. Um, mindfulness really is, is that open-hearted, recognition without fighting of this is what's true. In a sense, it's, um, it requires or it's a reflection of a deep understanding of karma. That either you have enough composure to be able to say what is happening now is the legitimate, appropriate, result of everything that's ever happened. When we talked before about um, being grateful, being able to say, I have no complaints. A complaint is something that we uh, uh, make when we think this shouldn't have happened. You know? Uh, and in fact, you know, when you go to a complaint department, when you buy something in a department store and it comes and it isn't what you ordered, it's appropriate to go to a complaint department and say, this isn't what I ordered, this isn't what I wanted. And in that sense, there's a, the, the, that's true. You said X, Y, Z, and they sent A, B, C. So the correct response to that is it's not a problem. We say, oh, quite right. You know, you wanted A, B, C, here it is. So it has it. It ought to have no sense of uh, anger about it. You know, the, the, you say the karma of that situation is the person writing it down didn't hear right, or the person writing it down accidentally wrote the wrong thing, or it just worked out that way. But you could see that things sometimes don't work out without any um, without any. Uh, greed, hatred, or delusion in the, in, the, in the intention. Sometimes things don't work out, so you say, this didn't work out. It would be interesting if we had a things didn't work out department instead of a complaint department. <laughs> and say, this, or uh, uh, fixing, a, uh, fixing something that uh, should have been otherwise, could be otherwise. Fixing something that could be otherwise. <coughs> Maybe that's not so different from 
the way in which I understand karma. This moment cannot be any different than what it is, given the whole history of the world. But tomorrow could be different, will be different, depending on what everybody does today. And with that awareness, it doesn't make us helpless. The, 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 the understanding of karma that says it's just happening, there's nothing I can do. It's happening because of everything that's ever been done. And what I do now is crucial. So uh, it depends on me, and it depends on every one of you as well. Even inaction is an action. Even inaction is an action. Certainly not voting in that last election was a very big action. Or not voting, you know, in anything, not acting. When you think about that, sometimes you think about it, you think, ah, yeah. but maybe we should think, ah. it would make us so careful. We'd stop, think, what am I doing? Is this, is this wise? So what mindfulness is, is really opening to the situation fully and saying, this is what's happening. And the fully requires that understanding of karma, because otherwise we can't stand it. You don't have to really look at the degree of... Um, if we look at the degree of pain in the world, it requires uh, some, some really deep understanding of karma, because otherwise we couldn't stand it. Otherwise we'd resent it have to be able to say, this is happening just because this is the only thing that could be happening now. But if everybody behaved differently tomorrow, it could all be different. There's a zero powerlessness about it, but acceptance. One of the words we don't use quite a lot, I think, and quite enough, is the word surrender. I like that word, surrender. It sounds like capitulate. It doesn't mean capitulate. It means just see, take off the glasses that prevent you from seeing what it is, and then do something. And the last, I've saved it for last. You don't usually save it for last. You usually come up to right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I've saved right effort for the end. Maybe we'll come back to that and begin next time. Because right effort doesn't mean make a big effort. It means the effort to cultivate in the mind what, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.